It's Tuesday, January 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Omicron variant continues to surge, but we aren't hearing the same calls for shutting things down again, at least not from Democratic mayors and governors. We have seen an attitude shift in recognition that COVID fatigue is real and people just want to get back to normal. This fight is especially playing out with school closures in Chicago. Susanna Luthi, reporter at Politico, joins us for why many Democratic leaders are changing their tune. Next, Pfizer is looking to start human trials of their Omicron-specific vaccine by the end of this month. A key goal of this research will be to compare the protections between the current formulation and one tailored to Omicron. If needed still, the shot could be ready by March. Andrew Dunn, senior healthcare reporter at Business Insider, joins us for more. Finally, researchers are getting excited for the possibility of sci-fi types of medical implants becoming a reality soon. Blurring the lines of tech wearables like Fitbits, researchers and doctors are thinking up of more ways to bring these technologies to the monitors inside the body. Kenneth Rosen, contributor to the Washington Post, joins us for how new medical implants may not be far off. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have robust surveillance testing programs in place that, uh, in addition to the vaccines, to the mitigation strategies, can allow our students to be safe in the classrooms and allow them to learn in person where we know they learn best. Joining us now is Susanna Luthi, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, the reaction right now to the surging Omicron variant of COVID-19. So we're seeing a lot of people get infected. We're seeing, thankfully, from what we see uh, a lot of places, the infections is not as severe as some of the other variants. But people are still getting infected. People are calling out. People are staying home from work. But what we're seeing is kind of a changing in attitude, maybe, from Democratic mayors and governors where once we would see a lot of them uh, uh, pushing for closures, business closures, whatever it is, school closures, now we're kind of seeing a reverse of that, more of a willingness to stay open. They're still pushing vaccines and other health requirements, but they're saying, by and large, let's start living our lives now. So, Susanna, tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, that's right. So I think we can actually trace some of this change in attitude back a ways. I remember when I was covering Congress in 2020, Ahead of that election, where, yes, Joe Biden won with a huge number of votes, but the House Democrats saw a big backslide in the House. And I remember before that election, I was talking to a swing district Democrat, and I said, you know, what are you hearing from constituents? What's the biggest threat for Democrats? Because they were, you know, people were pretty confident that the Democrats might even build on their House majority. And he said it was school closures. And I think that there has been a, a big disconnect between kind of the Twitter public health and, and largely democratic sphere and kind of what people are experiencing on the ground. So I think that what we're seeing now is, is an acknowledgement by more high profile governors of, of, of a fact that a lot of what a lot of people have known, you know, people can only take closure so long. Right. Kids really did have a a lot of suffering during the school shutdowns. So I think that's what we're seeing. And obviously, we're headed for another election in a few months. (laughs) Well, I mean, Um, that COVID fatigue for sure has set in for a lot of people, I'd just say the majority of the country, right? 
it's tough to bounce back and forth between all these regulations. And you mentioned the school closures. I mean, that is a huge one. And, and it's not just up to, let's say, the mayor or a, or a governor. You know, there's a lot of other factors at play. Uh, labor leaders and unions play a huge part in school closures and or schools remaining to be open. And that's kind of what we were seeing in Chicago, where they shut the schools down. Mayor Lori Lightfoot there was blasting the teachers and the unions for, you know, wanting to close when she maintains, you know, schools are some of the safest place for the kids. And so that's kind of what we're seeing play out. And uh, Mayor Lightfoot has been, I remember last year around this time, she was engaged in a pretty vocal battle with the unions over uh, school openings, and it's definitely ratcheted up. But I think her battle kind of epitomizes where things are. You know, here in California, where I'm, where I'm based, Governor Newsom, who was seen as very much criticized and faced a recall election over the, the prolonged, the longest school closures in the nation, it was seen as very cozy with the teachers' unions. He got them together in December, all the unions as well as public school management groups, and said, we're not going to close down again. And I think that's a very strong pronouncement of where the politics are. You know, California is a very deep blue state, but speaking to Democratic strategists here, they all acknowledge that there's a lot of, even in the Bay Area, where people are generally very liberal and have been very cautious, there's tremendous fatigue. So it's not necessarily they think the state's going to vote red, but I think incumbents are very aware of it, well, of the political pressures. We've seen, you know, a lot of the effects, especially continuing on schools, this effects on, on the kids and the parents having to adjust to all the schedules. So we've seen that. And yeah, that fatigue has set in. So people don't want to go back to all this remote learning. Republicans, for their part, say Democrats are just too slow to kind of see this shift in public opinion. We've seen Republican governors across the country continue to maybe say, hey, no mask rules, no vaccine rules, all that jazz. But uh, now they're saying that Democrats are finally on board. And and yeah, it it could have something to do with the upcoming elections. Right. And we have seen Democratic governors in conservative states. They didn't make the headlines during the pandemic the way Governor Gavin Newsom in California and former Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York did when they were very much pitching their response as a contrast to the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. But kind of quietly, you know, other Democratic governors in blue and red and purple states were just being a little more cautious. I remember the first state I visited early on in the pandemic when definitely the East Coast was on pretty bad lockdown was Colorado, where the governor is Democrat, uh, Jared Polis. And we could eat in restaurants there and things were opening up. And my niece there has almost been continually in person in school. So I do think that there there was definitely kind of a overarching politics-driven pitch for the high-profile high Democratic governors, and that's what we're really seeing changing, starting with the Biden administration. Obviously, the president has also started speaking out about keeping the schools open. Susanna Luthi, reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The three doses with a booster, they offer reasonable protection against hospitalization and deaths. Now, we are working on a, on a new version of our vaccine, the 1.1, let me put it that way, that uh, will cover Omicron as well. And uh, of course, uh, we are waiting to, to have the final results. The vaccine will be ready in March. Joining us now is Andrew Dunn. 
senior healthcare reporter at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's talk about Pfizer and what they're planning to do to tackle the Omicron variant. They're actually going to be starting human trials of their Omicron-specific vaccine. They want to start them before the end of this month. They say they could be done with it by March. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit more about what we know. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is really the promise of these new vaccines that both the group of Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna put out that are developed using a new vaccine technology, which really the potential of it is to allow for quick strain shifts. So when new variants emerge, can the vaccine be updated to be better tailored to that new variant? Pfizer and Moderna have done this with previous variants, and they've ran the same fire drill with Omicron when that first started emerging right after Thanksgiving. So today, you know, talking to Pfizer's chief scientist, Michael Dolston, he told me that they're on track to get that Omicron-specific coronavirus vaccine candidate into the clinic, starting human testing before the end of this month. And that should put them in good position if they, you know, to, to really assess the results and be ready to roll out that vaccine tailored to the Omicron variant starting in, in around late March. So that's about what the timeline's looking like for Pfizer. And it's interesting what's going on with this because, you know, the Delta variant came and, you know, was a lot more transmissible. I, we don't know all the data yet, but it did seem like people were still getting severely ill. With the Omicron variant, even more transmissible. But, you know, what we're hearing is that people aren't getting that severe infection or as a severe infection overall. The numbers still have to bear out. But the Pfizer CEO, you know, to that point is saying, hey, you know, we're making this, we're doing the trials. Even if we don't need it, we'll be ready with it. It's more a proactive thing where they started this before really knowing if they need it or not. And they, and they still aren't sure. They still aren't sure even as it goes into the clinic as far as this basically goes off the current vaccines. They still provide quite good protection, particularly against hospitalization and death. So it really gets down to can an Omicron specific shot, would that be able to boost protection and reduce all types of illness when you're thinking of symptomatic illness, mild illness? potentially even asymptomatic cases, although that's really hard to track. Could a tailored vaccine do that better? Hopefully this trial will give them some type of understanding of that. The other challenge to keep in mind here is what you were saying as far as Delta and there's been previous strains and these come up and then we have a new variant. And there's there's always the concern with, within Pfizer and these vaccine developers of will a new variant emerge by the time this one is ready for market? And then what do you do in that case? So part of this testing is not just testing the Omicron-specific vaccine, but comparing that to the original strain of the vaccine and seeing how both of them fare. And they're also looking at sort of a formulation. Um, it's not too clear exactly, but Albert Borla, the CEO of uh, Pfizer, he hinted at it today, is looking at some level of formulation that, that hopefully would immunize against all these strains uh, or find some middle ground there in the formulation. So it's kind of complicated as far as they're working through all these things. I think by March, it should be simplified when Pfizer has results from these studies as far as what the best path is forward. And there's one note that you put in the article that I was curious about. It said the trial is going to test, you know, both these formulations, right, comparing the other ones, the new uh, Omicron-specific one and the other formulations. But it says it's also going to be given as a fourth dose to study volunteers. So this is already people that have had the vaccine. And so this would be like their fourth booster, basically, is what they're looking at. Right. And, and I think that's really indicative of, you know, this is kind of reading between the lines here, but also talking to Michael Dolson, the chief scientist at Pfizer, he was really emphasizing also preparing for a potential fifth wave. And he thinks that could come in the fall alongside colder weather. So when you think about that, 
for most Americans or most people, that could very well mean getting a fourth dose. So this trial seems to be tailored to to answering that question instead of a boost or a primary series vaccination. And this kind of segues into this perpetual debate that's been happening over will we need annual boosters for years and years to come? And will we see strain shifts and will become like the flu vaccine? And it's really unclear that that seems to be Pfizer's base case scenario that's evolving is, is that, yes, we will need annual vaccinations, annual boosters, particularly for older and more vulnerable groups. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens with the development of this Omicron-specific vaccine. I did want to ask briefly real quick, because we're talking about Pfizer, they're going to get uh, in on this ultra-precise CRISPR technology, this gene editing technology. They're partnering with another company. They're paying them $300 million up front to get into all of this. And this is also going to use that same mRNA platform. They're looking at things that could deliver on liver, muscle, central nervous system diseases. Yeah, this is really fascinating and really sort of at the cutting edges of science because this is around a gene editing technology called base editing, where really the promise and the potential of this technology is kind of a next generation CRISPR approach where you can go into the genetic code of a cell and tweak a single genetic letter, turning an A to a G, for example. Um, And the premise of that is if you have a genetic disease that's caused by a mutation to a gene, go in, fix that genetic code, ultimately, hopefully, cure the disease or provide transformative outcomes. So this is Pfizer's first foray into gene editing. It's really interesting they're going with a company called Beam Therapeutics here. This work is probably still a ways away from reality. It still hasn't entered the clinic. We haven't seen actual humans being dosed yet. Some of Beam's most advanced work should get to that by the end of this year in sickle cell disease. Pfizer's not partnered on that. They're really looking at next generation technology <laughs> within that. So it's, it's it's pretty cutting edge wow. as far as using that mRNA to deliver gene editing tools into the cells to correct genetic mutations. It's pretty remarkable. It's, it's a four-year research collaboration, so it'll take some time to play out, but it's a, it's a decent-sized bet by Pfizer today. Andrew Dunn, senior healthcare reporter at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's really difficult to convince people that the implants are better or something that could uh, replace something as beautiful as maybe a ring or a, 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 a bracelet for that matter. So it's a really cool advancement. And I think we're going to see more and more kinds of devices and implants in the coming years. Joining us now is Kenneth Rosen, contributor to The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kenneth. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about some cool stuff for the new year. Uh, researchers saying that uh, a lot of these sci-fi type of medical implants are soon going to become reality. Uh, you know, microchips implanted in the body to help monitor bodily functions, different things like that. We've kind of seen an evolution of all of this already from, you know, wearables that track your heart rate and everything. So this is kind of the next step of what we're seeing with it. So, Kenneth, walk us through some of this. What can we expect in the near future? A lot of the implants we see nowadays are, are sort of a genesis that began with what we call body hackers who were installing magnets and other sort of uh, RFID chips to unlock doors or uh, access their phones and encrypt sort of devices like that. And that hobbyist mentality then became more attractive to the medical field. And, and of course, we've seen cochlear implants and pacemakers for uh, many decades. But now that 
those hobbyists are really advancing the medical field insofar as offering continuous monitoring devices that uh, are akin to Fitbits or, or other sort of wearable technology. And a lot of the reason we see wearable technology um, and the popularity of those devices today is because it's really difficult to convince people that the implants are better or something that could uh, replace something as beautiful as maybe a ring or a, a, a bracelet for that matter. So it's a really cool advancement. And I think we're going to see more and more types of devices and implants in the coming years. You know, one of the big uh, reasons for a lot of this is, you know, we see healthcare costs rising all the time. And a lot of these implants, a lot of these things can help with monitoring versus, uh, you know, waiting too late. Then you have to go to the hospital, uh, long hospital stays, things like that. Uh, you know, some of these implants can help with the monitoring and, and the process along the way. That's why a lot of these things are, are getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention. Absolutely. I mean, in the case of the uh, the pandemic, you could imagine having continuous PCR test, sending updates to a local health authority so that the moment that you contract the, the, the virus and the disease, you would know and the doctors would know and authorities would know and you would then be able to take measures to uh, prevent spreading the virus. And also what I learned through research in the article was that a lot of um, issues in hospitals today with medical files and computer systems is that patient files often get misplaced so they get mixed up with other patients or they're not always up to date. And this would enable patients to have a newest on their person file that shows their medical history in the case of an emergency or in the case of you know being out of state or, or out of country where that information would be vital to their survival. You know, a lot of this is actually, actually uh, you know, v- very cool stuff for conversation, you know, sci-fi future type thing, right? At the moment, though, it, it would seem like, you know, most people are a little hesitant to do something like this. You mentioned these body hackers and things that, are, you know, they're futurists, right? They want to propel themselves that way. But a lot of people, you know, they hear stories about implanting a chip just so you can open a door, things like that. And right away, eyes start rolling. So uh, that's one of the things that they're going to have to combat. Yeah, body modification, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, tattooing goes once taboo, and now it's a bit more accepted. Someone uh, I interviewed for the article had brought up that wearing glasses is considered a body hack as well, and that's become more acceptable, obviously, since um, many, many decades ago. So, yeah, I think that there are fewer people who are willing to try implanting things, you know, some foreign object in their body. As it becomes more acceptable and as it shows more greater promise, I don't think there will be as, as much reticence as today. I just recently saw an article about uh, a paralyzed man from Australia who had the first direct thought tweet after they implanted a computer chip in his brain. His name is Philip O'Keefe. He had uh, suffers from ALS and uh, he was able to send out a few tweets, you know, just by thinking it. He can control, you know, little functions on a computer through email and everything. So this has a lot of potential to help people with disabilities as well. Uh, anything uh, in research in the article that you saw coming down the pipeline that looks interesting to you? Well, I think anyone who is faced with imminent blindness or, 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 or a lifelong disability is more willing to try such ALS, is more willing to try um, an implantable device to be, uh, provide some sort of relief and, and betterment to their life. Um, as far as what's coming down the pipe, I think there's just a lot of interesting things as far as AIDS, sight and hearing, direct implants uh, that would be less costly and, and dissolve over time so that you would prevent the worry of, of oh, well, I have this foreign object in my body forever and something that you can install later if you need. So there, there's, there's more options now rather than saying it's in your body like a pacemaker forever and if it dies, it dies and then you'd have to go through a whole other surgery. There's, there's less, less invasive processes um, that are being brought into the field and are quite encouraging. Kenneth Rosen, contributor to the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.